de chegar E os passarinhos vão cantar Pois a alegria vai voltar E todo mundo que foi embora vai voltar Agradecendo a Deus Todo mundo vai rezar e cantar Deus é a vida A luz e a verdade Deus é o amor A confiança e a felicidade chegar e os passarinhos vão cantar pois a alegria vai voltar e todo mundo que foi embora vai voltar agradecendo a Deus todo mundo vai rezar e cantar Deus é a vida a luz e a verdade Deus é o amor a confiança a felicidade Deus é This week it is Monday afternoon. We are outside on our porch. I can hear an airplane going over overhead here. Hello, you Joel. Sure it's not a helicopter. <laughs> Might be a helicopter. I don't know. How are you? I'm okay. You know, I mean, I'm not. Uh, it's a stressful semester. It's a very compressed semester. And a lot is happening in the world. A lot happening in the world. A lot happening in the college life. I mean. Just with classes, I don't. I don't actually know what's happening yeah. in college life. <laughs> no, don't um, we're actually the most isolated from the college life, I think, that we've ever been. We've ever been, yeah, yeah. for sure. And uh, you know, there's just a lot going on. Yeah, you hosted a D and D game yesterday for a bunch of children. So I did. I did. That's why we're a little behind. <clears throat> we had a lot of Simone's, uh, our daughter's bubble, bubble friends were over at our house. So. Yeah, they had to uh, crawl through the Sunless Citadel. We almost made it to the end, but they're not great <laughs> at playing the game. So, But they have a lot of fun, and they're very enthusiastic. Yeah, I was surprised. I'm always surprised by that. Um, How that, enthusiastic they are, yeah, especially how low their skill is. Yeah, I think that's right, because I, it's hard for me to imagine what could be fun <laughs> about playing a game that you don't understand at all. But... When I when we were at a very good stopping point, I offered them the chance to stop and pause because it was a natural. And I think that maybe Simone wanted to, but 
she was overwhelmed by everyone's <laughs> desire to just keep going. So uh, she's actually a pretty avid game player, though. She's not. She's pretty good at it. She's pretty good. Anyway, anyway. let's uh, let's get into so this. Here we are, Monday, Monday afternoon. Sorry that this is up a little later than usual because of our tardiness in recording it. So today we're going to talk about the beginning of a book by Jordi Diaz um, called The Politics of Gay Marriage in Latin America. Cool. Um, his research question, sort of in its broadest, is why did there appear to be different trajectories and outcomes in the expansion of rights to sexual minorities? Okay. Um, so essentially this is a question of movement success. National differences. And national differences okay. and success. Um, so he looks at the variation across three countries, uh, Argentina, Mexico, and Chile. Um, and the three countries all have similar levels of urbanization, education, mm -hmm. industrialization, and levels of economic development. Mm -hmm. So essentially what he's doing here is he's controlling for, in his research design, he's controlling for these kind of like post-materialist values kind of arguments that like basically... Can like, I guess which ones, which cases have high, medium, and low success? Is that, wh is that where they... They, there are two differently successful and one failure. Okay. Now, it's actually really hard, right? Because I would want to say, <laughs> I would want to say that Chile would have the highest post-material values. Post-material values. Right, but we're values. controlling for those in a way, right? Right. Because these countries all have similar levels of urbanization, industrialization, education, and economic development, right? They're basically at the same level of economic development. So in mm -hmm. terms of like, he's basically saying like, look, that this explanation all, right. cannot explain. So structural explanations are out. Well, this particular structural explanation right. anyway. We've got to go like, with movement. We got to factors look more about movement, states, societies. So if we're gonna think movements and states and societies, who's your guess? I would guess Argentina and Mexico are more successful than Chile. Correct. Did I correct. do it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Chile is by far a pretty outrageous laggard. Yeah, uh, I just know that Argentina and Mexico are good at protest. They are. They are good at protest. And so that that was my. That's what I was thinking. Is that Argentina and Mexico their protest game? strong and you're actually going to see that kind of documented historically in the cool. early chapters of this book so um we don't actually get into his cases yet um his cambridge book it's cambridge book mm -hmm. but it follows mm -hmm. a slightly different pattern than the classic cambridge book so he has an introduction and then he has chapter two is let's do like a cases overview chapter he does like a, he does the, I forget exactly what the chapters are, but the, he's got one of the chapters, well, we'll talk about it. One of the chapters is going to set up kind of a little bit of a state society relations in these countries historically, and then one is going to set up a early mobilization in terms of gay rights stuff in okay. these countries before he gets into the period that he's particularly looking so at. So, a historical context. Yeah. Yeah. He gives us a little bit of the, you know, targeted, right? It's not, you know, the, the, in the way I'm, I'm reticent to call so it. What is he a historical institutionalist? I mean, you know, it's got some. Was that, that guy Mahoney? <laughs> like a I, it's, James Mahoney. He's kind of like I dig it. It's like I, I think that he does a nice. I don't. I haven't read his cases yet, but he's fundamentally interested in the role that movements um, play in not just getting issues on the agenda, but in actually shaping policy. So that's part of mm -hmm. why the state society relations become so important, right? Is yeah. that you know he cares about fundamentally about movements. 
Um, yeah. All right. So you can Do go I begin ahead now? and jump in. Yeah. All right. Page eight. The impact social movements have on policies are often difficult to determine. In Latin America, individuals who belong to social movements or non-governmental organizations, NGOs, have increasingly been recruited into government while maintaining strong relationships with civil society organizations. Because in many cases, left parties have recruited civil society individuals to government positions, the line between state and non-state actors has consequently become blurred. Moreover, activists' efforts are very often accompanied by individuals or allies who do not form part of these movements, but who nonetheless play critical roles in bringing about policy change. This is super interesting. Yeah. Right, that... That's really interesting. So what he's saying here, if I got got it right, is that in the in the region more generally, the government is staffed by people who get poached from right. NGOs. Yeah. Right. And so, on the one hand, you could expect this to be a great way of co-opting movement um, leadership, potentially potential leadership. Yep. But also, it carries with it, in a sense. I guess what I kind of see this saying is that these people that get poached from NGOs, from civil society, maintain links, but probably get poached before they really had the chance to develop into real activists. No, it's no. that's not true necessarily. Okay. Some of these people were big activists and then take roles in the state. I mean, in some ways we can think about this as, well... I mean, in some ways, I guess, in, in these countries are marked by inequality. So you have a lot of fluidity in the education, right? That there's mm -hmm. like, if you happen to be educated and in the capital, right, I think that there is some overlap here that you see, mm -hmm. right, in terms of that might be tighter than you would see in countries that have less inequality, if that makes sense, right? That sort of people that might fulfill these roles, there's not as much, Um but I think more than even apart from that, right, I think that this is just partly, it's always hard to figure out social movement outcomes, right? And then I think it's even more tricky to think about this when we think about this in the context of these actors moving in and out of politics. I see, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that it's like, yeah. yes, that these people are getting poached, which you could think of as weakening movements, and in some cases it probably does, but then you actually have a person that like has these strong movement values that's now in a and relationships. Power and those relationships still matter. Right. So, I mean, basically. And it's hard to assess in that sense whether it's the movement that did it or the state society so, linkage. So, he wants to say his argument basically is that policy change, this is a quote from page nine, policy change is induced by gay and lesbian activists who form extensive and influential networks of like minded state and non state actors, which in turn develop strategies and policy frames that convince policymakers and important sectors of society of their cause. Mm -hmm. I like the, the word used there is induced. Uh huh. I mean, it's sort of interesting. Yeah. Right? And I mean, it makes sense that it is like, like when I think about induce, I think mostly of doctors labor <laughs> you know inducing labor which in a sense is kind of like i mean in a way the movement is inducing right a process that like is a policy birth <laughs> yeah right that is yeah. like nascent yeah because the alignment of things like it's ready to you know like there are things are lined up right so i mean he definitely is going to tell i think i have like i said we haven't read his case chapters yet so we'll talk about those next week but 
that one of the things that he's clearly setting up is that he's pushing back against a little bit of social movements don't matter scholarship, mm -hmm. right? By saying, like, this isn't just, like, random networks of people that just happen to support this cause. That there are, like, right. fundamental, like, activists and activist groups who have been fighting over time and creating mm -hmm. different foundational things and then, like, getting themselves into positions of power. And mm -hmm. so that, like, this isn't, like, a random network absent social mobilization, but it's also not just, like, a clear social movement pushing against the state, right? This isn't, like, revol yep. revolutionary change where you've just upended the, like, political elite. No, it's, like, far more blurry, but, like, activists still play this critical role in inducing or pushing or yeah. whatever a policy change. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's a really... I like it. I like it. Can I keep... Should yeah. I keep going? Go on. Yeah, this is really good. So uh, he's also in this part setting up a little bit the importance of what he's doing. Okay. Um, just for the students as they're thinking about their own papers. Like, so we've seen his research question a little bit, thought, thinking about his research design, why he chose these cases. And in this card, I believe that you're about to read. We mm -hmm. could think about, in a sense, of setting up the importance of the topic. Okay. Uh, from page 28. Heteronormativity has not only shaped social relationships, but also those between individuals and the state, and it has conditioned the distribution of basic citizenship rights. There's two on this, so I think I'm going to read them both. Yeah, go for it. Uh, from page 45 now. Calls to have the state recognize same-sex relationships often stem from very concrete needs to access socioeconomic benefits. Because in numerous societies, including in Latin America, the family has been the mechanism through which the state has distributed numerous benefits. Limiting marriage to heterosexual couples is by definition, and in practical terms, exclusionary. Right, so I mean, this is just saying that we should care about this because basically a whole bunch of goods that the state has monopolized or charged itself to deliver are uh, predicated on particular family relationships, right? Right. Special and tax status, child credits, and whatever. Well, pensions, pensions health coverage, right. hospital visitation, yep. right? That there's all kinds of things that are very concretely related to um, to this. So the chapter one, actually, this is now I'm remembering what chapter one does. So the intro, then chapter one is actually all about this sort of the way in which we should think about the politics of marriage as a political, of course, yeah, as a political question, right? And so that he's sort of making the argument that it, it is a political question. It's I'm not, not a sociologist. I'm actually a political scientist. It's not simply a sociological question. It's not mm -hmm. simply about private relations, but that there is fundamentally a way in which the state has defined citizenship through this heteronormative family mm -hmm. um, situation and. I think he also argues then farther down on page four, I guess that that was on page 45, on page 46, that, that there's also a symbolic dimension. So there's these concrete dimensions of why this issue is important. But symbolically, he says, quote, because marriage has historically been the structure used to determine ethical sexual behavior and to exclude and oppress individuals who do not conform to heteronorms, mm -hmm. that gay marriage becomes important, like, for not only because, okay, we need pensions and right. visitation rights and health coverage, but also because, like, for us to be included as citizens in the gay rights, like, f for gay people to be fully included as citizens, then you have to have this sort of reimagining of what it means to be, like, 
an ethical person. And mm -hmm. like, so that's why marriage is, because he's pushing back here also against some of these um, people that want to say like why like marriage is actually not that important of an issue to fight for, right? And he's saying like, look, there are actually reasons why mm -hmm. in the construction of these states that this marriage as an institution defined who was a particular kind of citizen. And you see it when he does this, the students read, I didn't give you too much of this, but the historical construction of um, the family and mm -hmm. sort of the, the just heavily based in Catholic thought, mm -hmm. right? That you see mm -hmm. this sort of very strong sense where, I mean, you're gonna, you're constructing the sort of the non-conforming to heteronormative, whatever, people not conforming to heteronormative. Delinquents. Delinquents, basically, mm -hmm. right? That you've just turned everyone that's not not behaving in the way that you call the ethical family, right, into delinquents. And yeah. sometimes legally so, right? Right. And then sometimes just sort of... This is like a political scientist who's read his Foucault a little bit. Exactly. Foucault gets shout-outs in yeah, here all over the place, not just from Diaz, who talks about him some, but from the activists who themselves are reading Foucault and understanding... Knowledge is power, man. Knowledge is power. Um, okay, so that was this chapter was about setting up, so the first chapter, the chapter one sets up this sort of why gay marriage is important, why we should mm -hmm. think about that, why political scientists should think about that, right? This is mm -hmm. the political question. Mm -hmm. And next chapter two, um, which you're about to read some, uh, some stuff from, gives an overview of state society relations in these three countries. And okay. I've sort of condensed these for you, I think, in this section. Yeah, I've got you one not that's, so many quotes. Yeah, I've got a lot of non-quotes, but a couple of things kind that of give us... Kind of summaries to give you a little bit of, uh -huh. like, what is important about the state society relations yep. in these three okay. spots. All right. So... Uh, from 49 to 55, it looks like there's a lot of coverage of Argentina. Yeah, so this and is Ar the Argentina. Diaz notes that Argentina was marked by high levels of political instability, high levels of mobilization, and relatively weaker strength of the Catholic Church. Relative to what? Relative to other places in the, in the region. region? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the, at least amongst his three cases, but I think more broadly in the region. Is that right? It's the least... So interestingly, um, part of this is about the... Because the Pope is Argentine. Yeah. Um, right now, I mean. The current Pope, yeah. But they have had, maybe because they were so heavily an immigrant nation, or I, I'm not exactly sure why, all but... Catholic countries, they, and it's Italian immigration, they're all... A lot, but not only, right? Not I only. mean, also like Russians and, you know... Oh, okay. Right? okay. But they have a fairly significant Jewish population, um, in Argentina, and also had Nazi population too. <laughs> oh, the hell, that too. But Protestants, right? A lot of Protestants. So that you had more, I think, j earlier Jewish and Protestant. Oh, we're definitely going to Argentina can, can in we, November <laughs> when we have to flee. When we have to flee, we're definitely purges happen. We're definitely going to Argentina. That's where I want to go. Argentina is cool. It's a really cool country. Yeah, but when in we any have to case, flee. That's they where we're going. they had sort of more diversity of religion. I think that was more like there was a big Jewish community um that actually faced some repression. We talked about that actually a little bit last semester in my violence class. There was a bombing of the Jewish community center. Um hmm. that was never actually solved. Um, oh. The people were never brought to account. Um but in any case, the so the part of that okay. is like some of that is the explanation. There's other explanations of why the Argentine church has not continued as strong. Okay. 
he continues on here to say that since there was no confessional party, which I assume means since there's no religious Catholic party. Catholic party, basically. Yeah. He calls them confessional parties. I hadn't actually heard that term before. Yeah, I kind of want to look it up. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, the, church, the church relied on direct appeals to the executive, making its influence highly dependent on the president and power. Okay. So they weren't, the church did not have a kind of, um, it did not have an influence in civil society. There was no like link, there was no party link to civil society, no party link to political power. So they were just kind of, you know, uh, trying to get an audience with the president like any other interest group. Right. And like, I think initially this was a given. Right, so mm-hmm. that you're right that this was predominantly a Catholic country still, and so I think there was like this sense that that yeah. this was probably I don't know he doesn't go into this, but my guess is that there was a period where this was more assumed, right? That there was just right. like going to be this link, and that that changed over time, right? So right, so is Kirchner a German Protestant or a German Catholic? I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, but Kirchner definitely closed out the church, uh-huh. right? So that you have this moment Can where like under Menem. Um, the church has like a strong voice and is able to do a lot of um, kind of activism on by mm-hmm. lobbying the president, um, and that shifts under um, under Kirchner. I was just assuming that's kind of a, that sounds more of a German. It does name. sound German? I don't know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so that you have this, and there's no yeah, as I said, there's no, or as the card said, as Diaz said, there's no. Catholic party that's mm-hmm. sort of like there's not like an institutional representation in the government that this was all happening through you know these kind of elite relationships. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I'll read about Mexico. I can keep looking up about about Kirchner. Kirchner. We might have to, that might have to be something. Might be later. Might be later. Figure out it's later. all right. Uh, all right. Here's about Mexico. Mexico was, remark- was marked by remarkable okay uh, remar- marked by remarkable Sorry. <laughs> political stability, increasing mobilization through the process of democratization, and a strong commitment to secularism under the pre, with church influence exercised through the pan and opus dei, and strong social influence with a highly publicized weekly mass by the conservative archbishop from 95 to 2017. So Catholicism pretty strong in Mexico. Strong in Mexico, but, but Mexico had in the early 1900s fought these big um, wars called the Cristero Wars. Mm-hmm. That was conflict over the role of okay the relationship of church and state, um, and secularism won. This is post revolution. So Mexico right. has a revolution in the early 1900s, and then after that revolution, there's a period of continued violence. And one of the things that they're disputing in this period of violence is the role of the church, and the secularists win, and that is like held pretty firmly. Like Madero. Um, yeah, I mean they're all well. He was like he's before the Cristero War because okay. that's like post it happens after the revolution. So Madero is killed okay. early in the revolution. Okay. Anyway, so that you have this period. So that issue is decided pretty decisively when these wars end, that, like, Mexico is going to be this, like, there's going to be this separation between church and state. And so the PRI, the ruling party of Mexico until 2000, basically respects this. Like, Mm -hmm. they they keep reasonable distance, and the church isn't represented directly in government, but it's still a powerfully Catholic country, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you have the... um, the PAN, which is the was a loyal opposition right wing Catholic party that existed starting 
for, was went, goes way back, right? Um, and eventually takes the presidency in 2000. I don't know what year they found it, but they go pretty far back, I think, as this sort of loyal opposition party. Participate in the system, eventually, you know, come to power. But have representatives in Congress going back so that you do have this kind of representation politically of a party that's this kind of right Catholic party. And then Opus Dei and these groups are also powerful, and those are people that are elites, and so they're also able to, again, um, use informal lobbying in addition to that. There's that mm -hmm. um, right-wing party. So it's an interesting case in the fact that you have this Oh, and mm -hmm. this guy. So this guy there, I forget his name's like a Norberto or something. I can't remember the the archbishop's name, but he basically holds mass in the you know main cathedral mm -hmm. in Mexico City every Sunday, or mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. probably about every Sunday. Totally delivers political messages, mm -hmm. even though he's not supposed to, right? And that this is broadcast and like publicized in the dailies, so that you have like a very strong church voice in society. Right. So even though again, like there's some curtailment of formal church power, but there's um, mm -hmm. nonetheless active church role mm -hmm. um, in public life, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have again, as this sort of quote points out, right? That so that's the role of the church. So as we, as everyone should have gathered that we're talking about this because the church is going to be one of the main opposition actors to something like right. the legalization of gay marriage. Um, but you also have in Mexico a history of mobilization that um, Mexico was a corporatist system. So even it was an incorporative kind of authoritarian system in its period of stability. So people were used to being in unions and sort of having some role mm -hmm. in this kind of politics. And then as that system started coming apart, there was increasing mobilization starting in the late 60s and going all the way up through the democratization period um, that you had civil society actors becoming more active and robust as, as mm. that democratization process took place. Actors like the Zapatistas in the South that were an indigenous group, right? comes up, so you have this kind of mobilizational um, history and intellectuals that were kind of activists, right, were part of all these 60s and 70s okay. kind of movements. Um, so that's those first two countries. And then I think I have given myself the uh, card on Chile. So Chile is interesting because it's quite different from the, the other two countries. Like Mexico, it was stable. Right up mm -hmm. through the 19, really kind of except with the exception of this brief period in the 70s, right? So, but it's stable in two different ways. So, it interestingly is one of the earliest, most stable democracies in the region, right? Mm -hmm. So, it is like both stable and it incorporates societal interests not through corporatist structures, but through political parties. So you basically have a kind of pluralist democracy where interests are being incorporated into the party system. And this basically exists up through the 1970s with the parties increasingly incorporating new societal interests and concerns into party politics. Okay? Then in the 1970s, you start getting increasing mass mobilization outside the party system, including violent movements. Allende, a leftist, mm -hmm. comes to power in 70. Things get crazier and crazier through 1973. And in 1973, there's a coup, um, and Pinochet comes to power. And then you have a dictatorship that lasts 17 years that was highly repressive, highly demobilizing, and but also really quite stable, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like 
a lot of stability um, mm -hmm. through that period with this brief exception of very memorable instability right. that was partly caused by social actors on both sides, like mm -hmm. going outside of institutional politics. Um, so, so you have this this sort of odd thing with this sort of early mass this like mass mobilization surging in the early '70s to only be violently repressed, um, and so when redemocratization happens in the late '80s and early '90s, um, it was a highly negotiated affair. Okay, with not a lot of mobilization, and in fact, um, like the opposite of mobilization, right? Keeping everything down. So there's two interesting. Uh, features of state society relations that I think come out of this period of redemocratization, and that is what I've given you your next quote on is one of one okay. of both of these features. And so this is we are expanding so in, on the Chilean case. Yeah, so we're still okay. in Chile thinking about this period. So now we're talking about like 1990 and beyond in okay. this redemocratization as things. You didn't mention the church at all, though. Uh, I'm gonna get there. Okay, we're gonna get. To I was the gonna. I mean, because there was a lot about politics, but not as much about the church. And the other two, it was all about the church. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure I wasn't losing the thread. No, no, it's coming. It's coming back. All right. Page seventy. The democracy by agreement system rendered the executive, and more importantly, the informal negotiations. That sorry, feel like I was gonna sneeze. Well, we'll see. Um, the system rendered the executive and more importantly the informal negotiations that take place in the floors of La Moneda among... Uh, okay, La Moneda is the presidential palace. La Moneda is the presidential palace and then the Concertación, that's is what the, the Congress... So no, the Concertación is the coalition of left parties that is that okay. comes to power after the dictatorship ends. Okay, so the informal negotiations that are happening in the presidential palace among the leftist leaders, senior cabinet officials, and non-state actors become the main site of policy making so it's like really the lobbyists <laughs> y yeah literally the lo in the lobby right it's lobbyists it's government by it's negotiation and everything by lobbying to influence policy state and non-state actors had to have access to the negotiations that took place in la moneda and convince members of the uh informal coalition leaders to pursue their policy objectives so it really is like lobbying and so you'd be relying a lot on relationships. You'd be relying a lot on access. But access in this very narrow and informal way, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about redemocratization in the other countries, right, we think both involved civil society actors taking a role, pressuring leaders. We see leaders at different levels, having different levels of power. You see pressure happening on different points of government, right? And it's very different here in the Chilean case where the mm -hmm. left... It, the right has is highly repressive of social mobilization. The left does not want to disturb the right, which is still right. very powerful. Right. So is discouraging mobilization. And then to access the left... You've got to be in the presidential palace. That the legislature is very weak and highly controlled by the right, right? Or mm -hmm. not highly controlled, but I should say the right has... The, the way that the dictatorship leaving got negotiated out was that mm -hmm. the right got oversized power in the legislature. So if you're thinking about like, oh, I'm a gay rights activist, where do I go, right? Like the legislature is basically mm -hmm. out. And then Chile is a fed, is a, uh, not a federal system, is a unitary system. Mm -hmm. So then you're really looking at this like hyper powerful kind of executive branch, but that is doing everything still consensually, but in these kind of informal 
yeah. making sure everybody's okay and on board and we can go ahead and do these policies right happening. So this, again, to make sure the right is not too unhappy. Yeah, and if the explanation then is that, if the explanation or the theory is that links within government to civil society are the critical factor for movement success, you you essentially just have like such a you have such kind of narrow gatekeeping. Right. It's such a small like uh movements have to pass through like a fairly small like they gotta get in one door. Right. Right. There's not multiple doors right. yeah. to go through. And there's not multiple offices to lobby. Right. right. There's like a lobby. Right. And if you're not in the lobby Yeah, literally the lobby, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we haven't it's seen how the cases play out, but as I read this, I thought, wow, that's a, like imagining trying to sort of break in and, bless you, um, bless you, make a difference in this circumstance, bless you, is going to be challenging. This is doubly yeah. challenging by the second interesting fact, which is that the church, bless you, goodness. Mercy. The church is uh, historically extraordinarily strong in Chile. Yeah, okay. Uh, religious laws, mm -hmm. separation of church and state, much less important. Religious yeah, somehow laws I on thought that about Chile. For a long time. I don't know why. So strong church, and also interestingly, <laughs> but okay. weirdly given this, that in Chile at the time of the, during the dictatorship, you actually had some... Uh, liberation theology, some more left, left kind church. of uh -huh. church in in the in Chile, and they were critical of the human rights abuses of the regime. Uh -huh. This was not true in Argentina, um, right. where there may have been individual parts of the church that were. Um, but you get a faction of the church that's kind of into human rights. In Chile, you get a mm -hmm. strong kind of human rights presence, whereas in Argentina, the, the church doesn't take a stand and looks bad coming out <clears> of the dictatorship. In Chile, the the church takes a stand in support of human rights and so leaves the dictatorship with even increased legitimacy. Got you. So it's a strong church historically and then ends up like sort of on the right side of history, right, in terms of the dictatorship, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. So that when right. redemocratization happens, instead of the church having like being tainted by yeah. its like yeah. relationship with the authoritarians, it actually was on the force of the democracy. But its commitment to human rights does not extend to gay marriage. You you would imagine no, right? So well, you could imagine it going <laughs> differently. It I we again we haven't read this cases yet. So but it sounds like not. I mean, we I would I would imagine that we're not. That when we be... read some of the other stuff about as we move on, we will sort of see that there we could ima imagine uh, that it certainly has been more more. Is not a progressive area. Mm -hmm. Sure, relations. sure. Well, they do control marriage. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, there is a major thing. threat to the church in its like its right. its ambit of yeah shit. And you I know? forget at what point the but it's like when you look at these countries comparatively of like when the state is controlling more like the church in Chile still controls huge sections of the educational sector, right? So it's like whereas this is certainly not as huge of a thing in Mexico. Um, there's still some pretty important Catholic universities, I think, in Argentina. But, like, in Mexico, that's just not even as... I mean, there are private universities. They aren't necessarily Catholic. I mean, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Um, 
so yeah, so I think we're going to see that this is just, if we're looking just at these state-society relations, we see different sort of different state relations with like the civil society as well as different state relations with the church and also different societal relations with the church. So we see mm -hmm. sort of different bundles of these things going across. Okay. Okay. Um, so that was the chapter then that set up the sort of state society relations. The next chapter, chapter three, which is the last chapter that the students read for today, um, sets up the early mobilization histories um, in these okay. countries. So looking back prior to the fight for gay marriage of just like when did gay rights activism begin in these countries and what did it look like? Um, so in the shortest sort of summary version, the mobilization is pretty extensive in Argentina and Mexico, but not in Chile, right? It's just unsurprising mm -hmm. given what we already know about state society relations. Um, and interestingly for the class to note, um, a lot of that early work in Argentina and Mexico, and I just mentioned this in our last um, podcast that we just did on Frederick Douglass for your American political thought class, was that in Argentina and Mexico, so much of this early work was analysis and consciousness raising. Um, you just see a tremendous amount of work between intellectuals and um, feminists and gay rights activists and mm -hmm. sometimes left politics, mm -hmm. right? And it really reminded me of the Cumbie River women, and I hope that you guys also made this connection that just like you saw like printing you know, a public, like writing public and printing publications and like reading all of this material and getting this like cross fertilization from these different places was just this huge part of the work that was happening in Argentina and Mexico at the time. And the other thing that you saw in the Argentinian case was this interesting thing that also reminded me of the Cumbi women was that a lot of these activists were coming out of like left struggle. So they were like radical leftists and then mm -hmm. sometimes were then like pushed out of those movements for being gay, right? So mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. they, they like have that same, which the students should remember reading similar stories about the Cumbi River women where it was like they were trying to be active in, th in that case in the civil rights movement and then were basically pushed out for being women. So it's like the same mm -hmm. kind of like, right, these dynamics where they're trying to be active in these larger social struggles and then are finding their more, um, like parts of their identity are being rejected and then they are being rejected as activists based on part of their identity. So that this is part of the struggle. Okay. Um, that aside, Argentina's movement was marked by extensive collaboration, both historically and during the time of the democratic transition, where they were okay. like activists with all the other, like they fall into this human rights bundle more broadly of like they're hanging out with the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, who are a women's group, but not really a feminist group in mm -hmm. any way that we would think of that really. Um, but that they're very active in all of these. Like they're active with the feminists. They're active with the you know human rights. The, so the Argentine, the Argentine uh, case has like a much more heterogeneous culture of activism. Yeah, yeah. And that they're all because of the because of the dynamics of the dictatorship that the movements the the social movements are responding to you just end up with a much more like um they're cross fertilizing more. Yeah, Is they that existed right? before the dictatorship. There was some gay rights activism that happens uh -huh. before then the period of the dictatorship, it's hard for anybody to do all that much, but then they become part of the broader human rights. Yeah, it becomes a focal point that everyone who is involved in progressive social change is now channeling everything through that. Right. 
and then some of those links stay alive after the right. dictatorship. Is exactly. That... Yeah. So that you see them sort of entering this democratic period highly mobilized because that was their transition to democracy was a highly mobilized transition uh -huh. and then also highly linked to these okay. other and in particular linked to human rights orgs right? right so that they are already in this framework of human rights and you know that that's like part of their struggle for the yeah that's why that's why I was a little surprised with the Chile case that human rights within the church didn't have any more capacious view of human well, we'll rights. See what we, we'll see about the role of yeah, the I'm church when we get I, into I, the case. I, I look forward to next week because... Yeah. yeah, Actually, we may have to wait till two weeks to get to Chile. Oh, I, man. I think they must, might read Mexico and Argentina. This is a big book, huh? It's a big book. All right. You want me to read? Yeah. All right. Now, this is about Mexico. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh. So let me see if I need to set anything up for that. I think it's just... I think it's okay. You do, set me up a little oh, bit do here. Do I set you up there? Okay. Yeah, on page 91, um, you have a little bit of contextual yeah, go ahead and read them stuff there. here. Uh, Mexico's early and active gay rights movement declined in the 1980s, in part because of some early successes and internal divisions about how to move forward, and in part because of the economic crisis and the HIV-AIDS crisis. One activist noted... And now here we're quoting, I think, from the book itself. Yeah, and it's a quote actually from one of the activists right. at the time about the economic It sounds crisis. very much like a real, uh, like a quote. Uh, we were unable to deploy a language to engage the horrible economic crisis. We did not see the relationship between our cause and broader changes. We should have hooked our demands on economic realities, but we could not. The liberationist language was not enough. Here we are, liberated. And then? I really love this quote for a number of reasons, partly related to what we've been talking about in class about last week, mm -hmm. right, as you were, we talked about framing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of thinking about one of the, the article that we didn't talk about as much, the more kind of classic social movements framing article, talks a lot about these like ways in which you can hook your frame into like these larger kind of master frames. Right. Um, and so one of the things that, one of the reasons this quote, stuck out to me was it's this moment in which Mexico is undergoing a dramatic economic crisis in the early 80s and that where she's this activist is saying look we we just booched it basically like well, well I thought we couldn't see it we couldn't see it right we couldn't see it and so we couldn't like connect ourselves to the politics of the moment that felt important right the other thing embedded in this quote is mm -hmm. that than, that I gave you a little in the context is that there had actually been some early successes. Mexico um, City, I believe, had the first gay pride parade in Latin America. Um, Interesting. And so they had had some early like abilities uh, of like to actually sort of win the ability to have a public presence. Right. So that's right. Sort of yeah, the, the they've part got of the, the whole Sonorosa. Yeah. So right. this is and like to be less harassed by police yeah. and some of these like right. So that they had had these early wins that allowed a level of freedom, and according to Diaz, though, uh, I didn't. I don't know that much about this, even though I know quite a bit about Mexican politics. Supposedly, in the region that Mexico had far more of a acceptance of gay culture, kind of as long as it was private. Interesting. Than some of these other Latin American countries hmm. where it was like far more fluid, like, yeah, publicly, obviously you're straight, but like a far more kind of under yeah. cover kind of um, 
you know, like, huh. yeah, you, you're straight on, on the surface, but you can then have some sure. relationships sure, sure. otherwise, right? So I wonder what explains that. That's interesting. I mean, I think some of it, like, they, I, I don't, I haven't, he cites a bunch of books that I would be interested in looking at. I think some of it, in some of his stories, that I think alludes to some of the indigenous traditions that had more fluid gender, gender right. norms. And so that, mm -hmm. like, where you're coming out of these more fluid gender norms that the co colonial project never gets fully uh, imprinted, sort right. of, like, that they aren't right. able to, like, or they don't care enough to, right. like, fully, like, enforce that. So, I, I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting, look like a lot of relatively recent, uh, yeah. you know, sort of 2000s and forward work on it. So, cool. anyway, it's not something that, like I said, I know very much about. But it had a high percentage of um, one of the studies of, like, men who have had relationships with other men. Mm. In, I don't know if it was only, str like, straight you know, gotcha. sort of men. But anyway, interesting a little bit on that sort of culturally that has this. But anyway, so they have these early wins, mm -hmm. which then creates a problem of what do we do now? Right, right. right. Um, and that, that that creates these divisions in, in the movement of like, okay, do we like try to go for political power and engage with political parties? And do we, right. you know, so that there becomes some of this. Okay, so you have some problems of early success leading to like, what now? Right. And then conflict over what now? Right. Then you have the economic crisis, which is just inability. Turns right. everybody's right. Everyone that sucks up all the energy yeah. and attention. I mean, like people are just trying to get by. Yeah. And then on top of that, the AIDS, HIV/AIDS <coughs> crisis, which was just right. devastating to the Mexican yeah. um, gay community. It not only did it kill leaders and activists, um, uh -huh. but it also ended up partly shifting this what do we do now right. conversation into what we talked about with Tilly and Taro, that some movement success ends up turning into service provision, Right, is that there became like a huge chunk of the energy of the gay movement got sort of diverted, maybe isn't the right word, but like shifted into service provision mm -hmm. for HIV AIDS, right? There's sure. no anti-retro, what are they called? Retroviral, retrovirals. Anyway, the... The AIDS drugs are not mm -hmm. available. Nobody really knows what's going on with the disease. And so there's all this kind of like work to support people who are sick. And, you know, so that that ends up sucking off a huge amount mm -hmm. of that energy. It goes into this much more direct service provision, health centers, and supports for people managing the um, HIV right. AIDS. Um, and the HIV AIDS crisis also creates a renewed kind of state repression, right? Where you hmm. get renewed crackdowns because oh, right. Right, okay. you don't want to talk about AIDS and so you don't really want it. So, like, so that it becomes like a sort of another a moment of both stigmatization and increased, I think. Um, huh. Repression, interesting. Repression, right, yeah. Interesting. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to go back to Chile, it looks like. Yeah, so he, his, uh, his order is always Argentina, Mexico, Chile. Okay, good. Well, that's good. That's predictable. Uh, page 104. In Chile, the dictatorship not only stalled the emergence of the movement, but it had also prevented the establishment of relationships with individuals from other sectors of society. Right. So like, this is just in contrast to the Argentina. highly linked Argentinian yeah. movement. Then the Mexican movement, we see linkages, but also divisions, right? The right. Mexican movement ha is marked by, you know, both linkages and divisions. You saw a lot well, of... Well, it had a movement. It didn't stall, right? I mean, it had a movement that came out. Right. Whereas in the Chilean case, right, you get this in the period of the dictatorship, nobody is making linkages, right? Yeah, no, right? to anyone. 
the dictatorship, the Pinochet dictatorship, it's actually interesting. I don't think I gave you this part of the quote, but so Pinochet is a neoliberal, right, free market uh-huh. economics kind of guy, and he didn't particularly target gay and right. the gay and lesbian community in Chile insofar as they were other kinds of activists, which they often were students and intellectuals, yeah. they were targeted as part of that, but not distinctly because of their sexuality. Um, and so as his like neoliberal stuff uh, takes root, he's like, there's like space for them, like for the gay community to create bars and like, right. Right. Cause it's like, well, it's a market. Right? They pay their money. So you get a little bit of that happening but that's in the, different from a movement which is different than a movement but i mean that's like the yeah. extent to which they are yeah, yeah. Just, like allowing like you know visibility yeah. and yeah. well and like congregate congregation coming together yes, right? right i mean this is like a highly repressive regime up through 1990 right so you congregate right? in market-based spaces right. rather than political spaces right where you're like having beers instead of yeah know, well there you go making manifestos no zines and yeah wood prints or wood blocks yeah. wood block what, what do you call that stuff the woodcut yeah. printing step. Anyway, uh, page 107. Until same-sex behavior was decriminalized in 1999, it was difficult to cooperate with other groups. Do you want to just stop there? Sure. So read that sentence again. Until same-sex behavior was decriminalized in 1999. 1999. Yeah. So. Doesn't surprise me. Unlike these other countries. Right. The sodomy is like, like taken off the, is like, is not considered a crime. I forget the years. I don't have the map of it. But far earlier, right? Yeah. In the Chilean case, we're talking about yeah, like, still having sodomy laws up through 1999. That like homosexuality is a heinous crime and mm-hmm. like it like is can be prosecuted. You know, there was a lot of like unofficial harassment of gay communities mm-hmm. in Mexico and Argentina, even apart from but when it was those legal. laws were taken off the books. But like, yeah, you weren't actually. A criminal. Right, a criminal. And in Chile, we're talking, I mean, 1999 is so Very late. recent, right? Yeah, that's I mean, really that's 21 like, years ago. And it's like 10 years after the, I mean, or nine years, right, after the dictatorship ends, right? So, I mean, you're well into the democratic period. You still have. Right, so mobilization is going to be difficult if you're mobilizing on the basis of a yeah, criminalized so now identity. You can, now you can read the rest of that. So uh, it was difficult to cooperate with other groups because gays were de jure criminals. In addition, some movement leaders adopted very exclusionary approaches. Yeah, so the, the, he, he puts this aside a little bit. He's like, okay, uh-huh. yeah, gays were criminalized, and so that made cooperation hard. But then he's also sort of like, well, sounds like this one movement leader, that was an important Chilean movement leader, was a like huge macho oh. kind of masculinist. Oh. So his sort of, he was... A gay movement leader? Yeah, uh-huh. so presumably a ca- pretty charismatic gay movement leader, right? Uh-huh. Important. He gets, you know, like talked about in this as an important leader, but is against, like does not want to have anything to do with feminists, does uh-huh. not want to have anything to do with fights for reproductive rights and sexual health, is basically going to be so it like doesn't make any links with anyone else. Anti, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that trans was a mm-hmm. vocabulary people would have used at that sure. time, but basically, effeminate men, trans people, right? Like that, these people are basically also kind of pushed aside in his organizing. So one of the most prominent how'd that work out for you? Leaders, well, I think we we know that we're already yeah. right that Chile fails on this. Yeah, 
um, gay marriage. So it's like, work. I mean, some of it you can see how historically there's not opportunities for that cross fertilization. And then you just develop in this insular kind of isolated thing. Couldn't, couldn't see it. And couldn't, right. Couldn't, couldn't see, see it. it. So that you have this sort of movement history in Chile that is both collaboration has been made difficult by the years of dictatorship and then the mm -hmm. long criminalization of g gayness. And then you have on top of that, or mm -hmm. I think I, I think you have to see those things as partially linked, right? Sure. That one of the prominent gay movement leaders is like very much uninterested in connecting mm -hmm. with some of the other groups that he might right. have found common. And then you interact with, so you have that kind of movement culture and you have political circumstances where it's difficult to get access to important arenas where decisions are made and you have a powerful church that in some ways is probably hostile to your... And was part of owning a human rights discourse, mm -hmm. right? Had some mm -hmm. ownership over that over human that rights frame. discourse, yep. of a human right frame as a master frame, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of, we've set up in this first chunk of the book, the sort of what is to come in when we're actually going to now in the next chapters, next three chapters, be looking at the cases at the cases and, and okay. in particular the actual fight for gay marriage. Right. Okay. So like this was sort of setting up these like more like how we should understand the history of state society relations and the history of gay mobilization. Um, I don't know if the students thought about it in this way, but um, we've talked a lot. Tilly and Taro talk about this concept of a social movement base. I don't love the, terminology, but I think it is kind of helpful in this way. They use the example of Poland, um, that the solidarity movement built mm -hmm. on some movements that existed in the 50s that in that time couldn't take off, but like by mm -hmm. the time you get solidarity, right, that base of that movement base mm -hmm. has like already been cultivated. And I think that in a certain regard, what I see Diaz as doing in, the, in that, that chapter on early mobilization is setting up a little bit of what that movement base looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like the foundation on which the contemporary struggle for gay marriage is sitting, right? That like, it's not necessarily that movement that we read about from the 60s, but like that all of that has created foundational, you know, changes, mm -hmm. connections, public opinion pushes, right? That there's already been these early public opinion pushes to change people's views on some of these um, issues of gay rights more broadly, right? Um, even if not, specifically on on gay marriage. So that's cool. like sort of the, the part of the book that the students have read, and uh, I look forward to reading these uh, case chapters um, and talking about them with you next week. All right, guys, I will see you all in discussion sections uh, Wednesday and Friday.